What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, flamethrowers, it's Brenda here, and I get to drive the bus this week, joined by Jessica, Lindsay, and Shireen on board. So welcome once again to Burn It All Down. On this week's show, we're going to be talking about recent challenges to the gender binaries that are at the heart of sport and how to move beyond the transphobic sporting cultures. I mean, the WNBA doesn't have trans policies. There are so many leagues right now with zero trans policies. And we need of course, we'll also burn what's been terrible this week in sports and highlight people putting in the work to change it all. And I believe is the first South Asian what coach in the NBA. Bale, bale. A reminder that we're now coming to you twice a week because interviews will be standalone and drop on Thursdays. Our amazing guests just simply need more space. And in keeping with this week's theme, I'll be interviewing Dr. Katrina Carcasis, a bioethicist, and Michelle Kretsch, a lawyer and professor at NYU, who are experts on the Castor-Semenya ruling and advocates for inclusion in sport. Before all that, I want to ask you and get you talking a little bit about, in this time, if there's something that you are doing that you try to make into a sport that actually isn't. And I want you to keep it to one sentence. I won't be as harsh as one word because that's kind of impossible. But give me one sentence about something you try to make into a sport. And I'll just give you my example, one sentence, just to model this for you. I'm looking at you, Shereen, which is when I start to mow the lawn, I look at my neighbor who mows his lawn like twice a day. And I look next door and then I just see who wins. That's the sport that I've made it into. Jessica. Yeah, mine is 100% when I'm walking the dog. I'll try to pass people by going out into the road because I'm a socially distanced passer. Or if they're like on the other side of the street, I'll be like, come on, Ralph, come on, Ralph. And we will um, pass them and go faster. So that's mine. Shireen. Um, when I let Dada outside, she hides underneath the neighbor's uh, thing. So we have like a race. So I'm like, come on, come on, come on home. And she'll look and she'll look both ways before crossing the street and see how fast she runs. So I time her. So that's our little sprint home. Linz. Also walking my dog, I try and make it so that the streets I turn down in my little neighborhood part of D.C., that there will be no people. Like I try and pick the routes where there will be no other people. And you never know till you turn the corner, right? And then you're kind of holding your breath the entire block. Um, and, you know, I, I avoid all the busy streets. I love how my co-hosts have projected their competitive spirit onto their pets. Um, <laughs> Biad Pets doing sports is definitely a segment that I want to see. This week, we saw a number of interesting and sometimes infuriating challenges to the strict gender binaries of sport. First on Tuesday, September 8th, the Swiss Federal Supreme Court dismissed two-time Olympic champion runner Castor Semenya's appeal against testosterone restrictions in women's athletics. That same day, Canadian national women's player Quinn 
took to Instagram to publicly declare themselves as transgender. The following day, Chicago Red Stars forward Yuki Nagasato was officially loaned to Hayabusa 11 in Japan, a men's team. There's a whole lot then shaking the foundation of gender segregation in sport. And just briefly, I think we can start the conversation by thinking how important sport has been in struggles to define gender because it really always has been a site for imagining what the ideal bodies are like, what the limits of human capacity are. It's also drawn the scrutiny of medical science and fans. That scrutiny is heightened when they're black and brown bodies, as we've seen in Castor and Dutichan's, um, respectively from South Africa and India's cases. It's not surprising to me then that the first sex testing, the mandatory sex testing was during the 1936 Nazi Olympics in Berlin. I think this is about a real political argument from the beginning. And that's when Avery Brundage decided this was a something that they needed to establish. And part of needing to establish it all the time is because there's always been an understanding that these things are not as clear and not as scientifically binary as anybody ever would, you know, or any politician would like to put on it. So that's an assumption that these two sexes need to be distinct even when they're not, and even when science tells us that they never have been. I want to start then, Jessica, with the reactions that you saw this week from Castor. Yeah, so Castor took to Twitter a couple times. So on the day of the ruling, she wrote on Twitter, chills my people. A man can change the rules, but the very same man cannot rule my life. What I'm saying is that I might have failed against them. The truth is that I've won this battle long ago. Go back to my achievements, then you will understand. Doors might be closed, not locked. And then a couple days later, on September 10th, she tweeted, I will continue to fight for the human rights of female athletes both on and off the track until we can all run free the way we were born. Hashtag you can't stop us. What was your reaction to that reaction? I mean, on some level, I'm sad about it because Castor won't be running next year, despite the fact that she's clearly one of the best 800 meter runners in the world. But I just am always in awe of her fight she comes out swinging every single time every single time this happens to her and shireen from the canadian perspective how do you think the canadian sports world will react to quinn's announcement we've never seen a trans non-binary athlete in soccer in canada so i'm fully expecting canada soccer to botch this up however that being said there is actually precedent in hockey for this with harrison brown and friend of the show jessica platt They both are trans hockey players. So the hockey community has seen this, you know, and for a while, Harrison Brown still did. He played on a women's team for a while, because I think the thing is that policy in Canada has not caught up. The only policy that's fairly been updated has been youth sport, which is the varsity level, university and collegiate level. I wrote an article about it a couple of years ago, which we'll add to the show notes. But professional hockey is nowhere near there, nor are professional federations or associations. And that's a problem. So they need to get moving in those boardrooms. So there's the way that institutions will react. There's the way governing bodies deal with this. Lindsay, what did you see this week in the media? There was a lot of media coverage of Quinn's announcement, but a lot of it dead named them. And they actually came out on Twitter and said, you know, even the LGBTQ uh, plus publications often dead named them. And so that was really tough to see. 
And, you know, all the comparisons a little bit, as Shireen mentioned, have been to the past big name precedents in transgender sports, which has been typically trans men or trans women. And Quinn did not clarify. So as far as we know, Quinn is non-binary and there hasn't been as much precedent for that. And I think it shows how the media doesn't really, this is new territory. And we've seen it a little bit in the WNBA this year. Lasia Clarendon is non-binary and their pronouns are they, them, also he, she. And there's been this great moment on ESPN when Ryan Rucco is calling New York Liberty games where he is very casually used they, them pronouns in the middle of calling these games. Another chance, Clarendon from three, they got it not making a big deal about it, not doing the typical specification of, you know, this is the preferred pronouns of Lasia Clarendon, just using them. And it's been this phenomenal normalization of you know non-binary athletes. But I think going forward, what we really need to see, again, to a little bit to Shereen's point is just, I mean, the WNBA doesn't have trans policies. There are so many leagues right now with zero trans policies. And we need policies not just for trans men and trans women in all leagues, but also for non-binary athletes. I mean, because there are different stages in the transition, and it's important that regulations acknowledge that. If you think back to Harrison Brown, when Harrison Brown continued to play in the NWHL after he announced that he was a trans man, he put off his medical transition until after he finished with the NWHL, but continued playing in the NWHL as a trans man. And so I think all leagues need to be prepared for all different ranges of possibilities within the transgender category. Shireen? Yeah, just to add on to what Lindsay's saying too, I think that Canada soccer, although has never dealt with a particular trans athlete issue, I mean, there's a lot of out players on Canada soccer team themselves. And I think that's really important, but we just really need to be careful to understand that that whole sphere, the whole scope of this community is very different. It can't just be you're a man or a woman and identify as that. Like the point that we're making is that there are many identities and they all need to be respected. It's a great point about the relationship between rules and language, how a lot of times we think of what's allowed or what, you know, because IAAF has us thinking about testosterone levels and these, you know, fighting on the basis of some scientific empirical differences and any sort of league or federation is going to have to take into account a much broader cultural shift. Speaking of being ready for what's to come, FIFA actually does have a precedent that's interesting. The American Samoan soccer player who played for the men's national team in a qualifier for the 2014 World Cup, but the qualifier was in 2011, is Jaya Selua. And she is actually, there's going to be a a film made about her and there will link in the show notes some of the articles about her. But she is a Fa'afafin athlete and advocate. So she is under this Samoan umbrella, which is defined as a third gender. And it was on that basis of a kind of cultural argument that she was able to play for the men's national team. FIFA did not prevent that, nor did it also create, and they should have at that point, 
anything to account for this and for how they're going to deal with this going forward. So it's an interesting precedent, and I think it might be an important one as FIFA gets pushed and challenged. Shireen, can you tell us a little bit about how you think it might impact global football? Yeah, just to say that Canada isn't the only one that is not prepared or equipped to deal with this. There are examples of different federations all over the world, including Iran. And there's this article that I remember coming across into, because, you know, everyone knows that Iran is really in my line of sight, just in terms of how the Football Federation of the Islamic Republic of Iran, that's a mouthful, but they had terminated the contracts of seven players for being on the national team. And they were accused of being men and they were told that they were either men who had not completed transition or suffering from sexual development disorders and this is an article from Vice from Maryam Muhammad who wrote it and what ended up happening is they forced gender tests that's invasive it's violent and it's unacceptable and in a way of doing this we have to be and when I say we I think sports federations, Canada, soccer, whoever around the world need to be really careful that you don't violate someone's personal rights in doing this. And soccer federations, and I think there should be something mandated by FIFA or AFC or different federations around the world to mandate what can be done and how this should be done because they're not and they should hire experts to do it like Piyoshni Mitra, friend of the show, Dr. Katrina Carcasas. They need guidance on this because they simply don't have it and the expertise doesn't exist in said federations. Yeah, and we know if they leave it up to cherry picking the scientists that they want, what will happen? So it's a scary thought to think that they're just going to, you know, copy the model of the IOC in the IAAF, it would just be, I think, a disastrous policy. But it does feel like there's something positive about this kind of moment, that there's so much activity that every day in all of these different kinds of sports, it feels like we're seeing athletes really bravely trying to shake at the foundations of that hard and fast binary that sports leaders like Avery Brundage since the beginning have tried to make sure is unshakable. Jessica, is this evidence that the kids are all right? <laughs> I like to think so. It, it's so interesting because like at this moment when science is trying to define gender and sex more rigorously than ever, we have the youth, the youths out there. They're more gender expansive and they're willing to push on the binary more than anything I've ever seen in my life. And so Lindsay's point about Laisha and the coverage in the WNBA, I mean, that's a great example. It was also heartening to see athletes in other sports come to Caster's defense, one of them being Simone Biles, arguably the most famous female Olympian in the world right now. She tweeted, this is wrong on so many levels. Once again, men having control over women's bodies. I'm tired. Tiana Bartoletta, a track and field athlete whom Amira interviewed recently on episode 169, which it matters that she's in track and field specifically. She tweeted, question, when and where do I get my testosterone levels tested to confirm my eligibility to compete as a female in track and field competitions? So all of that is great. And I want to shout out friend of the show, Katie Barnes. I know they listen. Hello, Katie. Katie is a writer at ESPNW, an outlet whose name references the gender binary in sport, right? But Katie, who is non-binary, uses that very space to report on gender expansive topics and athletes. But still, I'm trying to be positive here, but we can't let go of the fact that there's still so much work to be done, right? Earlier this week, Katie did a short thread about their experience within sports media, and I just want to read part of it. And so here we go. Quote, 
One thing that I've really struggled with as of late is finding my place within communities of marginalized journalists. A lot of spaces designed for women in sports are explicitly not inclusive of someone like me. I'm not saying those spaces shouldn't exist, but my experience is that in the sports industry, women's spaces center she, her pronouns and femininity at the expense of queerness broadly and gender expansive identities specifically. In a society that devalues femininity, the need for these spaces is abundantly clear. The unfortunate impact of that is the continuous feeling of acute isolation that I feel as a non-binary person. So I'll just end here. Even in these moments when we're really excited to see the gender binaries being pushed on in sport, we can't let go of the fact that they still exist and do harm. Support for Caster is wonderful to see, but she's still not going to run the 800 meters next year in Tokyo. As a reminder, our interview this week is with Dr. Katrina Carcasis and NYU professor and lawyer Michelle Kretsch. You know, the turn to testosterone, I think, is a molecule of convenience here. If testosterone itself was not gendered as a hormone, I actually don't think that they could be making these kinds of regulations and the arguments that they make about these regulations. I mean, without women willing to stand up and unfortunately face all the scrutiny that comes with it, we might not even know what's going on. So their courage and determination really is what gives me hope. Okay, now it's time for everybody's favorite moment of the week, where we take all the garbage in sport and throw it onto a metaphorical bonfire. Shireen, will you get us started? Hello. This week, I'm going to be burning something that makes no sense to me, which is why it's absolutely in partnership with the USSF. They nominated all their folks for the Hall of Fame. And, you know, there's your expected men and whatnot. However, there was one name that was left out, Hope Solo. Now, I have admired the way she plays for a very long time. I think she's an incredibly strong goalie. And I say this as a woman who's birthed a child who's obsessed with Hope Solo's technique. I'm also a huge fan of the Needing Anger fan club. And technically, I think Hope is very strong. There's no question. Why was she omitted? Was she omitted because the USSF dealt with that situation really poorly? Or was she omitted because there's literally something missing from her world championship winning play, golden glove winning experience? I don't know, USSF, but I'm going to try to find out. There's been a lot of wondering and secret soccer writer WhatsApp groups I may or may not know of. However, USSF, this is a disaster. Hope Solo, however complicated, deserves to be in the Hall of Fame. I want to burn that down. Burn. Burn. I'll take the next one. I want to burn Skip Bayless's comments on Dak Prescott's public announcement that Dallas quarterback admitted to his struggle with anxiety and depression following the suicide of his brother related, according to Dak, because of their mother's struggle and ultimate death from cancer. That would seem not to elicit criticism, but leave it to Skip Bayless to find a way to pollute anything. He said he did not have sympathy with him going public, the Fox Sports fodder maker said basically, quote, the sport you play, it is dog eat dog. It is no compassion, no quarter given on the football field. If you reveal publicly any little weakness, it can affect your team's ability to believe in you in the toughest spot. 
and it can definitely encourage others on the other side to come after you, end of terrible quote. And obviously this is an awful way to talk about mental health. It's also an objectification of a man of color by referring to him as an animal out the get-go. I don't think we need to spend a ton of time to realize why this belongs on the bonfire. So I'm just going to quote the bard, Richard Sherman, here, who referred to Skip Bayless as, quote, ignorant, pompous, egotistical, cretin. I'm going to crush you on here because I'm tired of hearing about it. I'm tired of your ignorant pollution. So I would like to throw Skip Bayless on the burn pile, only just barely metaphorically. Burn. Burn. Okay. Uh, Lindsay. Yeah, so this is a little bit awkward for me to take as the only non-mother in the group, but bear with me. Bear with me. I'm not trying to insult my uh, co-host here, but I do want to burn the turning of mothers into inspiration porn that we saw at the U.S. Open this week. We had three mothers, Serena Williams, Sadana Prankova, and Victoria Azarenka make it into the quarterfinals, which was a historic moment. News media did not play it chill. Uh, neither did the tournament itself before the quarterfinal match. Prankova and Serena Williams were both introduced by the in-court announcers as mother of and then their children's <laughs> names, like as they were coming onto the court. And then if you look at any of the coverage of these matches, so Serena played two mothers back to back in both Prankova and um, Azarenka and all the headlines were mother of all matches. It is crucial that we remind and encourage those who have given birth that they are not washed up and done, that they can still be competitive athletes, that their life continues. That is wonderful. I love seeing mothers do it all. But it is equally as important that we not stray too far in the other direction and imply that the only way to be a phenomenal woman, the only way to be a phenomenal female athlete is if you have given birth. And that is the only way we will see you as a hero. And that it is just darn right down unthinkable that a woman could give birth and uh, go this. And I think we, we strew way too far in the other direction. I want to focus not on the heroicism of these people, but on the policies that have made this possible, on the support they received, and on getting that support to be more egalitarian. In the U.S. Open in particular, Prankova was only able to come back because Serena and Azarenka fought for bigger better policy. So she got longer to come back and use her special ranking after birth, thanks to work that Serena and Azarenka, who have a lot more money and a lot more resources, were able to help the WTA include. That's what the the subject should be. I'd like to conclude by having Azarenka's quote when she was asked once again, how does it feel doing all this as a mother? <laughs> and she said, that's not the only thing that we are. We are also women who have dreams and goals and passions. And she said that on the court, she didn't feel like a mother. She just felt like <laughs> a tennis player competing. So let's burn the um, fetization almost of like motherhood in this sporting context burn 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 jessica so on saturday in norman oklahoma a town of roughly one hundred and twenty thousand people about twenty thousand people gathered in a football stadium to watch unpaid college athletes play football two days earlier the state of oklahoma reported 771 new cases of covid and 13 
percent of those, 103 cases, were in Norman alone. According to Emma Keith at the Norman Transcript, quote, Norman's new case number is the second highest single day case increase the city has ever seen behind only Saturdays, 196 new cases. After the game, which Oklahoma won 48-0 against Missouri State, the head coach for the Sooners, Lincoln Riley, confirmed that the game had been in jeopardy because of the number of cases of COVID on his football team. Not that we would have known that going into the game because Riley has decided not to release COVID testing data information about his team anymore. Quote, I think we're to the point now where we're playing games and obviously any active case or contact trace is going to have game repercussions. So just like we would with an injury, we made the decision to not broadcast that. I know we've probably been the most transparent school in the country up until then, but you don't want to give your team a competitive disadvantage. So we're not going to do that. As friend of the show, Nicole Auerbach, pointed out on Twitter following Riley's announcement, plenty of teams have refused to release any testing data saying their decisions are about privacy, but then still comparing the release of those numbers to releasing information on injuries. It's all so callous to care more about your competitive advantage than your overall community's health, even as you're making decisions that could very well negatively impact that community. It is not that I'm necessarily angry at Riley or only at Riley. I'm mainly angry at a system that encourages these men to make these bad choices over and over again that rewards them actually for it at the expense of the health and safety of their players and their community. So I just want to light that system on fire today. Burn. Burn. And now for our new segment that we've dubbed the Torchbearers, rising like a phoenix from the ashes of our burn pile, are people doing amazing things to change the culture of sport. So this week for our Innovator of the Week, who is it, Shireen? Yes, congratulations to Sonia Rahman, who for 12 seasons coached the MIT women's basketball team. She has been recently hired by the Memphis Grizzlies as an assistant coach, and I believe is the first South Asian what coach in the NBA. Bale, bale. Woo! Okay. And barrier breaker of the week, Jessica, who's it go to? Yeah, it's Nielsen Paulus, who is Oneida, one of the five Iroquois Nation tribes. He is believed to be the first tribally recognized member of an indigenous people's nation to race the Tour de France. Wow. Okay, and I get to award the person kicking sexist ass of the week. Hall of Fame broadcaster Doris Burke will become the first woman to serve as a game analyst for conference finals and the NBA finals on ESPN radio. Okay, and can I get, I know it's, you know, a different segment, but I'd like the same sad drum roll, please. (laughs) Give me a drum roll. Linz, who's our fire master and torchbearer par excellence this week? It is none other than Naomi Osaka, who won the U.S. Open in a phenomenal three-set comeback over Victoria Azarenka. Osaka is only 22 years old. This is her third major second Grand Slam. She wore the mask, entering her seven matches of Breonna Taylor, Elijah McClain, Ahmaud Arbery, Trayvon Martin, George Floyd, Philanda Castile, and in her final match, Tamir Rice, to draw attention to the victims, black victims of police brutality, whom we're still seeking justice for. And in her final quote, when she was asked during the ceremony about what she meant to say by the mask, she turned around the question. You said from the beginning you had... Seven matches, seven masks, 
seven names. What was the message you wanted to send, Naomi? Um, well, what was the message that you got was more the question. I feel like the point is to make people start talking. And I think in all ways, she was a champion. In the dark times, we like to talk about what's good in our world. Lindsay. (laughs) (laughs) Enough said. Yeah. Uh, You know, my co-hosts know I've been going through a particularly rough phase of life. So, you know, it sounds cheesy, but it's the things that keep me going anyways. It's my co-host. It's family support. And it is... Also, you know, women's sports have been great. You know, we're in a good time for women's sports. Power plays, readers, burn it all down listeners, just kind of these forces in my life that keep me going day after day, even on days where I think that uh, <laughs> these days I really think I can't keep going. And so, yeah, and I just want to send a, lo- a, a shout out of love to everyone who has dealt during COVID with trying to caretake at facilities where you cannot enter and where you have to do it fully by phone. I have been um, introduced to that world just over the last week, and I cannot even fathom doing it for six months. So a special just shout out to the caretakers inside of these nursing homes and these hospitals who are doing the work and to loved ones who are trying to bridge that gap, even though it is near impossible at times. Well said. Jessica? Yeah, well, one thing that's good for me is that we're now doing this on Zoom, so we get to see Mo. Behind Lindsay, and that always makes me very happy. Uh, he, I see him right there. See, there he is. Uh, honestly, it's still my book. Like, I think it'll probably be that Yay. for a while. To, doing a lot of press for that. And, of course, I got Shireen's photo with her book this week. And there she's holding it up. Y'all can't see it, of course. I also, this is birthday week in our house. My son turned 12 yesterday, and Aaron's birthday Yay. is three days from now. So I just really enjoy all the cake that we have in the house during this week. And I didn't make any of it this year. So I just get to eat really good cake from a local bakery here called Sugar Mama's that I love so much. And then the other thing on Friday night, Aaron and I watched a great documentary called 20 Feet from Stardom about backup singers. It's from 2013. And it is so, so good. It's one of my most favorite documentaries I've ever seen in in my life. And in part because he lets the, the director lets them sing for a long period, like you just get a ton of them singing and it's spectacular. Uh, but it's on Netflix right now and it's about to leave. So you have like, by the time you hear this, you have maybe a week to go watch it before it leaves the platform. So I wanted to tell everyone about it. Oh, you heard it here. So I'll take the next one. What was great is we had a very socially distanced masked visit with co-host Amira Rose Davis and it got late and we both have You know, my daughter is seven, and she followed around her son through the yard, Jackson, with a flashlight, and they played all kinds of games, and they picked green peppers and then tried to make faces out of them, and it was the cutest. So jealous. I know. It was, (laughs) I mean, mean, so my kids loving Amira's kids um, is pretty much what's good in my week. She would love all my co-host kids and just them in general, and Mo and dogs and everything, but... 
it was especially cool to see them get along and also our teenagers who bonded over their love of Harry Styles and it made me feel less like a failure that Amira had also raised someone that thought Harry Styles was worthy of this kind of attention. So that was great. And also, maybe some of you don't know, but the theorist Roland Bart wrote an article called The World of Wrestling, which is in a book called Steel Chair to the Head. I had never read it. It's super interesting, and I was excited. Shireen. Yes. So I completed my first week as grad student, and it was fun. Um, pretty wild. I was all, like, uh, stressed out about it. Thank you to all the wonderful people in my life, academics, particularly for preparing me. I reached out to a bunch of you and a bunch of you sent me really wonderful messages of good luck because there was a lot of anxiety I had before doing this. So week one ended with this absolutely amazing culinary experience. And you all know how much I love food. Like, this is no secret. I went to with my best friend, Aaron, who has just moved here for Edmonton. So that's very exciting. And I was still kind of mourning the loss of the Raptors. And I'm okay. And thank you for those who've checked in. I'm fine. Uh, we'll go next year. Just <laughs> prayers up for Van Vliet. I've been, I've been okay. My mother was great. She was very supportive. So Erin and I went to an indigenous cuisine experience called the Seventh Fire. So the chef, Rich Francis, who was a finalist on Top Chef, prepared us incredible things like, oh my God, bison. We had turmeric and ginger crusted salmon we had a salad like in a three sisters soup it was probably the best meal i've ever had on turtle island and i told him that only almost close would be sushi i had in vancouver and i'm very particular about food and this was incredible and it's a way he talks about food sustainability he offers to teach people about that and traditional cooking techniques and while he was speaking I said what it was one of his inspirations was and he said stories from the land and that moved me so completely because as a settler it's really important to understand where food is where it comes from and whose land we're on and you know things that we adopt without thinking and not adopt things that we take over rather and it's just it, it's in every aspect of our lives including food so that was really really awesome and they made this super amazing iced tea which was just tea but with orange and basil in it and flowers and I'm like y'all I'm gonna post a photo of this because the photos were wild and so yeah god I could have a whole podcast about food anyway so that's what's really good and will carry me over not so much the thousands of pages of reading that I have to do but that's okay so if you see me a little less on twitter and whatnot it's because I'm reading or pretending to read Okay, and as part of a new segment, we wanted to let you know what to watch for in sports this week. And what we're watching are WNBA playoffs. The first and second round, which are knockouts, will take place this Tuesday and Thursday night. Barclays Women's Soccer Super League is actually ongoing, and it's back, and it's tremendous. And you can see women's World Cup champions like Rose Lavelle play on Man City and the like, and also the NWSL Fall Series. That's it for this episode of Burn It All Down. On behalf of all of us here, especially more than ever September, burn on and not out. This episode was produced by Wizard, Martin Kessler, and Shelby Weldon Extraordinaire does our website and social media. You can listen and subscribe to Burn It All Down on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Play, Stitcher, really any of those types of things. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at Burn It All Down Pod. We're on Twitter at Burn It Down Pod. Check out our website, burnitalldownpod.com, for previous episodes, transcripts, and links to the show notes. 
From there, you can email us directly or go shopping at our Teespring store. Yay! And links to our Patreon. From now until the end of the month, if you join as a patron or upgrade your patron, you will get a specially designed sticker, which we have made just to show you our love and appreciation for all your support of the pod. New on our Patreon is Fireside Chats, available to top-tier subscribers. Yes, just like FDR warmed hearts in the Depression, you can join your favorite co-host too. Once again, an evergreen thank you to our patrons. It means the world. You are, and I speak.